Today on The Courier Daily, how to deal with conflict remotely. I have a colleague who I've had to learn that her terse emails are just her moving fast, not her being a jerk. And it takes, I just have to remind myself every time, I'm like, why would she say that? I'm like, all right, she's moving fast. She's in a rush. She has a lot on her plate. I just have to keep reminding myself of that because it is so easy to read emotion and intention into those, you know, quick one-off emails or, you know, the passive-aggressive email. And a bit later on, we're in Detroit. A quote that we go back to with, you know, our own team is from, you know, Yvonne Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia, shared that during the financial crisis, he said that the key to kind of weathering a conservative economy is quality. And that the number one reason is that, you know, in a recession, customers stop being silly. And instead of buying fashion, they'll pay more for a multifunctional product that will last long. Then I'm with my colleagues to talk through today's Courier Weekly. On the agenda, the milkman reinvented. So suddenly they were getting a thousand new customers a day. And in the space of two weeks, they found themselves delivering to 20,000 households across the north of England. So it's obviously crazy, crazy scale and growth. And to do that, they had to hire 40 new drivers. They had to sift through 200 applications a day. So the piece really looks at how they modernized milk delivery a couple years ago, and then all of a sudden had to kind of completely reevaluate how they were doing that again. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. It's the 10th of April, and this is the New Daily Podcast from Courier. I'll be catching up with business owners all over the world every day to hear how they're adapting, pivoting, and surviving. And to that end, just before we get started, We'd really love to help answer any business questions you have, from finance to supply chain to branding. So just grab your phone and record your question. The voice memo app on your iPhone usually does the trick. And send the recording to me at daniel at couriermedia.co. If we're able to answer it, well, you might just appear on an upcoming show. Right, so first up today, even though we're all working from home and not rubbing shoulders with colleagues in an office, conflict is still bound to pop up even remotely, whether that's a passive-aggressive coworker on Slack or someone whose email tone just isn't fit for purpose. Well, on the line now is Amy Gallo, a contributing editor at Harvard Business Review. She's the author of the HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict and the co-host of the Women at Work podcast. And Amy, for you, what's the secret to dealing with conflict at a distance? I mean, I think the distance actually, in some ways, exacerbates the conflicts that you might have had because you have no additional information aside from text, like the Slack message, like you mentioned, or the email. You're not getting facial reaction. You're not getting tone of voice. It's just a situation that's ripe for misunderstanding, misinterpretation. And yet, there's also the flip side, which is that there is some upside in that, you know, if we are on Slack or even on a phone call, I can't see you roll your eyes at my comment. So I may not know that you actually feel feel negatively about it. And so in some ways, there's that that lack of body language, you know, nonverbal cues can sometimes be to your benefit when it comes to conflict. There's two things I'd recommend. One is really just you have to over communicate. You have to address conflicts early as they arise. Otherwise, things tend to spiral out of control in these environments. And the second thing is, in this environment, I think people also tend to shy away from disagreement because it takes a lot more 
effort to, you know, think through what you want to say to figure out how to write it as opposed to in a meeting where you say, well, I'm not sure I see it the same way, which is much easier to do. So that's the other thing I think listeners really need to be careful not to not have these difficult conversations because they're important to do. You wrote this piece for Harvard Business Review in 2015, Resolve a Fight with a Remote Colleague. Obviously, that was years before the crisis. I'm actually wondering what you wrote that in response to, or was that just kind of a general idea you had? I've worked remote for about, it's, I guess we're going on 18 years now. And I have always thought this was a, a more challenging environment. And truthfully, it came in, the idea for the article came in the wake of a really nasty email disagreement I had with a colleague. And I thought, oh, I need to talk to a few experts to figure out how to handle this. That was the impetus for the, for the article back then. But it, it does feel more relevant than ever right now. You listed a bunch of different points, essentially, of how to deal remotely. So, I mean, number one in, in this article you wrote was appreciate the upsides. Yeah, you're not going to see the person rolling their eyes. You're not going to necessarily detect annoyance. So in some ways, the focus tends to be much more on the work and less on the interpersonal reaction. I think that's not as relevant in the current environment because we are so attuned to our emotions. We're under a lot of stress. Definitely, there needs to be attention paid to things beyond just the work. The other upside, though, is that you might be more inclined to sort of dive into something when the person's sitting right there. Oh, I can just grab them. Whereas you do have to be a little more thoughtful about which disagreements you're going to engage in. Again, that can maybe push you to not engage in them, which we don't want because you definitely need to continue to have difficult conversations. But at least you're going to be more thoughtful about which ones you engage in. What about move the conversation away from email? How do you do that remotely? Yeah, I mean, you and I are seeing each other on a, on a Zoom call while we record this podcast. You're in London, I'm in Rhode Island, right? This, this is the kind of richness that you want to try to encourage you and your colleague to engage in. If you're talking over email, I don't care how many emojis you include in that Slack message or in that, that email, you're not going to convey the same amount of tone, nuance, and emotion that you would if you see the other person. Sometimes, you know, video, of course, is, is not a, a replacement for interpersonal reaction, but in this environment, it's the best we can do. Sometimes even picking up the phone can help and just hearing the person's voice. People's voice convey a lot of emotion. Some people are totally different on email than they are face-to-face. I mean, some people are like passive-aggressive, caps, a lot of exclamation points on email, and then you talk to them and they're the loveliest person in the world, right? That's right. And it helps to sort of pick up the phone because it also shows you're engaged in having the conversations. You're, you're invested in making whatever you're trying to decide on or get through. You want to collaborate. I have a colleague who I've had to learn that her terse emails are just her moving fast, not her being a jerk. And it takes, I just have to remind myself every time I'm like, why would she say that? I'm like, all right, she's moving fast. She's in a rush. She has a lot on her plate. I just have to keep reminding myself of that because it is so easy to read emotion and intention into those, you know, quick one-off emails or, you know, the passive-aggressive email. One of your points is bring in someone else if necessary. Why is that? Well, I think if things get really tricky between you, if you're not be able to solve the issue, it can help to ask someone to intervene, especially if you're in a power struggle, if you're dealing with someone who's really passive aggressive and is not able to have a constructive conversation. Sometimes involving someone, especially someone who's not invested in the outcome of the conflict, can help you both reflect and integrate 
both sides. They, in fact, that person sort of helps increase the empathy. They're going to be truly curious about each side, which will encourage you both to be curious, as well as to sort of take the time and effort to more clearly articulate the assumptions that you've made. One of them, as well as, you know, increase informal communication. Does that mean, you know, WhatsApp and Slack, as opposed to an email or something? Yeah, this is an interesting point. This came out of some research done by someone at Stanford named Pam Hines, um, someone at INSEAD named Mark Mortensen, both of whom have looked at what decreases unproductive conflict on global teams or dispersed teams. And both showed that the more that teams have frequent informal conversations, the less likely they are to have unproductive conflict. And that, in Pam's research at at Stanford, that could be simple as one person reaching out by email. Hey, how's it going over there? What's going on? You know, even the question you asked me at the top, how are things in Rhode Island today, right? Just reaching out and asking forms a bit of a bond, makes it more likely you'll give the person the benefit of the doubt. Mark Mortensen's research is interesting. He actually looked at what happened when teams had an always-on video link. So this was actually when teams were co-located but in different locations. Now, I'm certainly not going to leave Zoom on all day to let my coworkers watch me work, but I do think sometimes having a, a virtual coffee, doing something so that it's it's just sort of more informal, you're just sort of interacting in a, in a more frequent basis, it can be really helpful in terms of making sure that you're seeing each other as people, not just having transactional interactions. And, you know, Amy, one of the big ones that you bring up is just give your colleague the benefit of the doubt, right? That is huge because we make so many assumptions. We tell ourselves stories about what's actually happening between ourselves. And especially if we're having a difficult interaction with someone, we come up with all sorts of rationalizations, usually that entirely leave yourself blameless and make the other person at fault. In reality, you have to just assume that you don't know what's going on. And it can be so helpful to enter these conversations with empathy, compassion. So tell yourself you don't know what's happening with the other person. They might be, you know, texting you from a hospital waiting room, right? They might have just had a horrible night's sleep because their kid is frightened about what's going on right now and couldn't and had nightmares all night. You just don't know. And it's helpful to say, I think that person is doing the best they can, and I'm going to treat them that way. Do you think finally that this crisis will end up being a a godsend for introverts, maybe? Oh, man, you're talking to an introvert who is so happy to be in her house all day. (laughs) I wish the other people in my house weren't here all the time. In some ways, I do think Let me tell you what I've noticed with myself. There's many ways in which I'm relieved to not have to go through the small, you know, talk and even like having to say hello to my neighbors that I'm sort of relieved of not having to do that at this moment. And yet I think it's playing to my worst tendencies. You know, I do need to get out of the house. I do need to talk to people. I think it's going to teach us a lot about ourselves, whether we're introverts or extroverts and how to sort of temper our own personalities and really get what we need from interactions with other people. At least that's my hope. I'm really looking for silver linings in this whole situation. Next up, we're in Detroit. Back in 2014, Kyle Hoff and Alex O'Dell both launched their furniture brand Floyd with a single product, a metal leg to clamp onto a surface to create a table. They've since grown Floyd from a Kickstarter-backed brand into a direct-to-consumer powerhouse. 
But how's business going now that COVID-19 is wreaking havoc with supply chains all over the world? Well, Kyle and Alex are on the line now, and I want to kick it off with a look at how Floyd's supply chain is faring in the crisis. I mean, you have wood, metal, fabric. It seems pretty complex, no? Yeah, so our supply chain is, you know, mostly U.S., and we do have some kind of redundant suppliers, and there are some materials that do come from overseas. But, you know, for the most part, when this all started happening, we we definitely focused on, you know, one, ensuring kind of the safety of our partners and making sure that everybody was, you know, doing their best to ensure the safety of their teams. But also, yeah, really thinking about how are we procuring, building material ahead, you know, as we started seeing things develop in Asia None of our products come from there, but we did really move quickly to start to build up inventory in the U.S. so that like if something did happen, which has happened, we would have, you know, inventory of our key leading products if in fact we saw any outages across our supply network. So you bought more than you needed just to kind of prepare yourself? Yeah, we have a pretty lean supply chain because it is all U.S. I mean, we like to keep our you know inventory pretty minimal and, and move it quickly. But um, yeah, in this case, we did build up some you know excess inventory. And yeah, the supply chain, you know, we do have like suppliers in, you know, who are wood in in Michigan and North Carolina, Tennessee, you know, steel in Pennsylvania. So it's kind of dispersed throughout the U.S., but um, we focused on, yeah, kind of building up ahead and then distributing our inventory to kind of a network of fulfillment centers that were across different locations in the U.S. A typical furniture company might have 6,000 different options. And to adjust and build up inventory ahead of time or react in real time is really difficult. There wasn't really something we planned for in that way, but just having essentially four core products of a shelving system of a bed frame and a sofa and a table, you know, did allow us to be more nimble in how we would react. Has the delivery of your products been affected by the crisis in any way? The actual delivery of, of the products from, you know, your factory to consumers' homes? Yeah, I mean, it's it was actually interesting, like literally at the beginning of March, we onboarded a new delivery partner that we've been working on for six months that was more focused on giving a better delivery service that included white glove or in-room delivery. And we turned that on and quickly had to shift to a, a new, you know, contactless delivery process. And, and I think we moved quickly as soon as it started to, you know, transition the messaging around that, how it was communicated on site. And that's been the kind of status quo of how we get product to people. It's left outside, no signature required. You know, we ensure we kind of communicate that to customers on the on the front end. And Alex, I know you guys have a shop in Detroit. On your website, you list shops and cafes all over the U.S. that have Floyd sofas in them where people could come sit in them and, and test them out for potential customers. Obviously, I assume a lot of those places are closed right now. Will that affect sales at all? Or is that such a small part of your sales, the kind of in-store experiential stuff? I think that's a smaller part of the model. Over 90% of our sales are coming direct through floydhome.com. And a lot of those customers are not trying out the product in person before buying it. How have sales generally been for you guys? Yeah, I mean, it's actually been um, sort of a moment where we've seen sales remain pretty steady. We've definitely continued to see a large year-over-year growth in this period. We're offering a product that's focused on quality and modularity, and we really want it to last for people. And a quote that we go back to with you know our own team is from you know Yvonne Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia, shared that during the financial crisis, he said that the key to kind of weathering a conservative economy is quality, and that the number one reason is that you know in a recession, customers stop being silly, and instead of buying fashion, they'll pay more for a multifunctional product that will last long. 
you know, we're lucky that we don't, you know, have a brick and mortar model, you know, from the onset. And since we started this business, it has been about selling direct to consumer, focusing on the person's home. And and people are very focused on their home right now. So I think that has benefited us in some ways. What about your staff? You were mentioning before, you know, you're taking it day by day. How are you guys running the company right now in terms of everybody's working from home? Do you have staff members packing stuff in the factory and other staff members at home on Zoom calls 24-7? What's the daily workflow look like? It's been a quick and easy transition, to be honest. I mean, for our like in-house core team, I think like, you know, we work closely with our manufacturing partners. And I think as we alluded to earlier, I think just to support them as much as possible. But yeah, our team has transitioned really well to to work online. I think, um, you know, we have a number of team members who were already remote. Do you guys do like daily Zoom check-ins or something like that? We've had, um, you know, just like informal sort of coffee chats daily that anyone can hop into. Also twice a week, we do just COVID-19 business impact like update. And every vertical, a part of the company runs through and says any updates there. And it just allows us to keep communication really open, really transparent, make sure everyone's on the same page because the update of information is happening so quickly that it requires a new level of communication than we've ever had to do as a company. Do you guys think that the direct-to-consumer revolution, as it were, is is a bubble that's about to pop, like some future gazers are saying right now on the internets? We started by solving a pretty straightforward problem around furniture. And I think that's how we think about product and everything we launch. And I think there are a lot of, you know, companies that hopped into this sort of D2C world where, you know, you could sell anything online and put a brand behind it. And and that was that. So I think there is probably going to be, you know, if there isn't true problem solving and, and really delivering a good product and a good experience to a customer that has always been sort of the the model for a good business. I don't, you know, I don't know if those companies will necessarily last if they're not doing that. In terms of business planning, like are your projections just right now all completely out of whack? I know you said your sales are still kind of on an even keel, but like how does anybody know what's going to happen two months from now, let alone five years from now? We've always operated on pretty longer timelines with product development. Like it can take two years to develop uh, one of our core products. Yes, there are some things that are very hard to plan right now, like hiring is really hard to plan right now of, you know, what does your headcount look at the end of the year? It's tough. But things like what's, you know, the pace at which we need to develop product is pretty crystal clear to us. For me right now, at least, it's way easier to plan for five years out than it is to plan for two months out. I think people will always need furniture and I think always need good thoughtful furniture that lasts. And and there's no doubt in my mind there, but um, knowing what the the world's going to bring in two months is a lot more complicated than I think what the world will bring in five years. And finally, on today's show, today's edition of our Friday email newsletter, The Curry Weekly, is hitting your inbox this morning, assuming you're a subscriber. And uh, with us right now to talk through all of the highlights, or maybe some of them, is Courier Editor John Sunyer and Courier Editor Duncan Griffiths. Welcome to the show, both. Hey, Danny. Good to be here. Hello, both. It's good to be back. <laughs> he says with huge enthusiasm. So, Duncan, we kicked off the newsletter this week with a story about how one hotel in Sydney has quickly launched a neighborhood collective, and you talked to them about how they did it. Yeah, that's right. So Paramount House Hotel in Sydney saw a lot of their businesses around them shutting and closing, and 
basically decided to launch a digital voucher scheme in which they'd have two different passes, a neighbourhood pass for 150 Australian dollars and an overnight pass for 300 Australian dollars, splitting the money evenly between 10 venues. So yeah, the, the hotel basically handpicked the venues themselves and limited to 10 so that the money would actually make a difference. A team of five basically downed tools for, five, for two days and rolled out the idea. They built a purposely simple website with scalability in mind and it's been a big success so far. And in fact, they've actually been contacted by businesses from Cape Town who are looking to set up something similar. Yeah, it's a really nice way of just basically businesses coming together to support one another when, you know, in a time when they need it most. Yeah, check it out in the weekly if you want to learn more about that. And John, you know, we also had a fantastic piece that you oversaw in the weekly today about a really age-old industry, milk delivery to your doorstep. But the twist for our story is that it's essentially been modernized, right? Yeah, so um, milk delivery is obviously something that kind of died out over the past decade. It was super popular in the UK in the 70s, 80s and 90s. You know, this idea of having a, a bottle of milk delivered to your doorstep each morning. And in 2018, Simon Mellon, with three friends, bought this kind of ailing milk company and this really run-down milk float for just £3,000. And he launched an app and a website, and he really modernised the whole experience. And it was going fairly well. And then, obviously, when COVID hit, the whole business completely changed almost overnight. So suddenly they were getting 1,000 new customers a day. And in the space of two weeks, they found themselves delivering to 20,000 households across the north of England. So it's obviously crazy, crazy scale and growth. And to do that, they had to hire 40 new drivers. They had to sift through 200 applications a day. So the piece really looks at how they modernized milk delivery a couple of years ago, and then all of a sudden had to kind of completely reevaluate how they were doing that again. And finally, Duncan, we also delve into the world of screen fatigue. What is it and how do we prevent it? Yep. Computer vision syndrome is real. We actually caught up with Dhruvan Patel, who's a leading optometrist and founder of OxyShield, to offer some kind of practical tips to limit the impact of screens on your eyes. So four steps. One, measure the distance between you and the screen. Make sure it's at least at arm's width. The second is every 20 minutes to look away from the screen for, for a minimum of 20 seconds and at least 20 feet away from you. Third is to adjust screen height to make sure that the middle of the device is five to six inches below the straight line of your vision. And the final one is to make sure you blink. So apparently, normally we blink up to 20 times a minute, but when we're looking at screen, that's down to three. So basically blinking as much as possible. You also managed to sneak in some dodgy illustration, right? Yeah, based on true events. So be careful with whatever you're staring at outside your window. Doesn't get you in any trouble. My special thanks to Amy Gallo, Kyle Hoff, Alex O'Dell, Duncan Griffiths, and John Sunier for today's show. Make sure to also sign up to Courier Weekly for more stories of pivoting, adapting, surviving, and growing. That's at couriermedia.co slash sign up. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. This show is back again on Monday.